Well, I mentioned earlier that we are uh, going to do something slightly different. I'm going to just, you know, I can be a little bit pushy sometimes, and uh, I'm going to push us a little bit. And so uh, we're going through Psalm 73, and what I want us to do is, in a moment, I'm going to ask us, as we read the psalm, as I read the psalm, I'm going to ask you to stand up, just to, um, and the purpose of standing up is to show honor and respect for the Word of God, and not just stand up. You're like, okay, I can stand up. Then I'm going to ask you to hold out your hands like this, and um, the whole purpose of doing this is to uh, essentially position our bodies to be in a place where we're declaring to the Lord, uh, I receive from you, Lord, Um, and so as we're thinking through the psalm, we're kind of positioning ourselves to be willing to say, Lord, I receive. Give me, um, Lord, from your word. Allow me to drink deeply from it. And I know a lot of y'all are saying, we're not Episcopalians, we don't do that kind of stuff, and that's okay. We're going to this morning, so uh, so we're going to do that, but I'm going to just ask one more quick thing for you, um, and that is what I want y'all to do is think think of a situation in your life where you feel like life has been unfair to you, uh, where the situations uh, didn't line up the way you wanted them to, where somebody else got the promotion and they're lazy and you're actually the better worker and you should have gotten the promotion, but you've been passed over. Uh, For Andrea and I, I mean, most of us have like certain points in life that we can access that story. Maybe we're in it right now, but there's like three or four stories that we can access pretty quickly of when we felt like we were passed over um, or that life wasn't fair to us. One of the things that Andrea and I uh, draw from um, in this regard is um, we, um, several years ago, well, 10 to like 13 years ago, we struggled with uh, infertility. And, um, and so that's just not, uh, it's obviously not a fun, it's a heartbreaking uh, process to be in when you're struggling with that and, and you're not getting the thing, the very thing that you're longing for. Uh, but not only were we going through that and struggling, but we uh, were simultaneously working with a teenage girl who, um, who had gotten pregnant and who we were trying desperately convince, to convince to keep the baby. And ultimately, she decided not to, and she drove to Houston, had the procedure done. But um, we responded to that, and we said, Lord, we have a home that's ready. We are begging you, asking you, Lord, give us a family, give us children. We want that, and we're trying everything that we can do to try to make that happen. And all the while, there's a girl that doesn't even have to try to make this happen. She kind of accidentally makes it happen, and then she doesn't even want the child. And so we look at that situation, and we say, Lord, no, this is not right. This is not the way the world is supposed to work. So I want you all to think of what is y'all's unfair situation where life is working out for somebody else and not for you, where you were passed over and uh, somebody else wasn't. Everybody got it? Okay, cool. So from that perspective, while that's fresh on your mind, we're going to read from the scripture because uh, what we're going to find is that Asaph, the author of the psalm, is going to speak uh, to that situation. So we're going to stand up. If everybody would stand up, show honor to, uh, to the word of God. And then we're going to stretch out our arms to receive what the, uh, what the Lord uh, has for us. Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. 
Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And then he transitions here. He says, if I had said these things, like if I had said all of these things that I've been thinking, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of God's children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. Further down in 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my strength. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Y'all can be seated. Um, okay, so for those of you who were, uh, who were thinking about, uh, you know, the, the opportunity or the, uh, the time in life when you were passed over, or maybe that's happening now, hopefully as you were able to uh, connect with what Asaph, the writer here, the worship leader, is saying, it was, uh, hopefully it was helpful to, for you to, uh, to allow yourself to kind of go into that situation and say, how was I processing through that? How was I dealing uh, with that situation? And what we're going to find is that Asaph takes us through a process of being bitter and confused into worship. Um, a few weeks ago, um, I, I mentioned in the prayer, and I think Matt mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a team of people that went to Greece, and uh, we were in Athens, and we worked primarily with, uh, with refugees. Um, and as we've, processed, uh, as we've processed that trip, uh, one of the ongoing themes that have come up, or one of the, on, one of the words that tends to be used the most is intense. It was an intense trip. It was amazing, but it was intense. And there were many things that stood out about that uh, trip. You know, seeing uh, people whose lives had been just uprooted. They were left in turmoil, hearing their stories, seeing people respond favorably to the gospel, seeing that the problems exi- uh, there are problems that exist in this world that uh, I'm not going to be able to change. Um, and it doesn't look like change is coming anytime soon. Those things all weigh really heavy. But one of the things that stood out to me the most was the faces of people. Um, we got to um, uh, meet brothers who uh, fled Pakistan and uh, were arrested a couple times. Everybody's journey starts out somewhere in the Middle East in a number of countries, and they wind their way through Turkey, and they walk for uh, days, weeks, months, and then they uh, hop on the nearest thing that could be possibly called a boat, and then they, uh, uh, and then they make their way over the ocean to, uh, to Greece, and they arrive in Greece, and then they uh, make their way up to Athens in any number of ways and, uh, and, you know, lose some people along the way. And that's the common story. That's the common thread. But I see their faces. I think about, um, I think about uh, an Iranian man that we met that lost uh, most of his immediate family and his extended family. There's no one left. 
He's by himself. I think about these faces, and the reason I bring that up is because before I went and encountered these amazing people, before I went, I only knew them through news. I only knew them through um, uh, what was reported about them. And so I had the ability to, one, distance myself and to say, oh man, uh, the world is broken, the world has fallen, that stinks. Um, Or maybe uh, a fear, oh my gosh, Muslims are leaving a hostile environment, they're making their way to Europe, and then what's next? Uh, And so I can look at that at fear. But what happened when I went to Greece is I encountered the person, and I moved forward into their presence, and I began to see their world in a little bit different way. I began to see that uh, they're unwanted uh, in in their home country and in Greece. They're trying desperately to do well for their family um, and um, and, and to do well in life, but life is just not working out for them, to say the least. And that happens for all of us. We uh, perceive people's situations, or we even perceive the world around us in a certain way through our own lens, through our own filter, and it's only when we move forward into that person's presence that we begin to see a different story. This is exactly what's happening in the psalm this morning. Asaph starts us in a place of feeling really frustrated, feeling envious, and questioning what God is up to. Not questioning like, hey, I wonder what he's up to, but questioning like, God, you're not right to allow this to happen. And then he guides us into a place of, um, of worship and of repentance. And he does that because he moves into the presence of God. And as he does so, he begins to see a different reality that's taking place. But the first thing that he does in uh, Psalm 73 is he addresses unmet expectations. Um, he starts out in verse 1, and it sounds really good. He says, surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Okay, surely this is the case. Surely things are uh, going, um, this is what I know to God. At the very foundation of what I know to be true of God, of Yahweh, it's that he is good. It's that he uh, rewards people who are faithful to him. But I'm seeing a different reality. He says, but as for me, my feet are stumbling. What I know about a good God and what I see about an evil world, these two things are not matching up at all. And we can say, yeah, oh, we know this question, we know this, this issue of how can a good, good God uh, allow you know, terrible things to happen, and this question sits in different places in all of our hearts, but it sits a little bit deeper for him. In Deuteronomy 28 through 30, this is like a pivotal uh, passage of Scripture to understand the Old Testament. You know, we, um, uh, we think about the Old Testament, we look at all the different covenants, these are different ways that God interacts and relates with mankind and how mankind is to respond to him, but... When you look through the Old Testament, the expectation of the Israelites is always going to be based on this Deuteronomy 28 through 30 passage. He lists out, basically, if you're faithful to me, I'll bless you. And if you're unfaithful to me, Israel, I'll curse you. And what Asaph is doing is he's recalling this ethic that God himself has laid out. But he starts listing all the different things. Um, so in, in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about the people who are faithful to God, they're going to have lots of, uh, have lots of children. They're never going to go hungry. They're going to be exalted high above everyone else. Life is going to work out for them always, and I will establish them and allow them to experience peace and prosperity. And he goes down a list of ways that that's going to happen. And so Asaph looks at that and he says, Lord, these are the things that you promise. 
in Deuteronomy 28. This is like the soul of our ethic. And the exact same things that he promises to those people who are faithful, not only does he not give it to Asaph, but he gives it to people that are wicked in the sight of God. He's taken away the blessing, the expectation that Asaph had, and he's given it to his enemies. And Asaph is reeling. He doesn't know what to do with that. I mean, think about us. Think about when our expectations are unmet. Think about when, um, even uh, even whenever, uh, politically, whenever things, we feel like things are taken from us or forced onto us. Think about how angering that is to us. And that's a nation's governance. Imagine if God himself said, hey, this is the way life is going to work out. And he doesn't deliver. Can you imagine how angering that would be? At the very least, on a good day, it would be confusing. This is what Asaph is dealing with. And I think it begs the question for all of us. Is what are the expectations that we have on God that he's not delivering on? And I think all of us can sit here and say, oh my gosh, Ryan, that's not, that's not, we, we know not to expect of God. I give thanks every day for blah, blah, blah. I'm grateful for every breath I take and blah, blah, blah. And we know to say that. We've been trained to say that. And we know that that's true. However, those times in life, like the ones maybe that we thought of at the very beginning of the uh, talk, those times in life where we don't receive our expected reward, we're out the door. So we place expectations on God without realizing it, and then when he doesn't deliver, we're upset. One of the things I think of, I, I worked with a lot of college students, several guys that said when they were dating, they were like, uh, you know, I say myself for marriage, and, uh, and um, I, uh, I wish that I was dating a girl that made the same decision, but she didn't, and I'm angered. Like I had a couple of guys say, I deserve differently than that. And I very lovingly rebuked, <laughs> rebuked that mindset. And we talked about, you know, this is what grace is. And you're actually not as great as you think you are. Um, so um, we got to ask ourselves, what is the expectation that God is failing to deliver on? Because we all have them. Uh, the next thing that uh, Asaph is going to do is he's going to lead us through this. And he's going to say, okay, what are the tools that we're accessing whenever we're envious. In other words, whenever we see life working out so well for the bad people and so terribly for me, what's our go-to? What's our coping mechanism? What's our, uh, what's our inner four-year-old doing in those situations? Um, well, the first one is self-pity. We begin to uh, pity ourselves. Um, now, I want to be really clear on this, uh, on this part. So, there's a lot of psalms where uh, um, the psalmist, the writer, is saying, Lord, this is terrible. Everything I'm seeing around me is awful. It makes no sense. These are called complaint psalms. Surprisingly, they're about complaining. Uh, and so, like, the largest category of psalms are complaint psalms, are lament psalms. We think about Psalm uh, 13, where David says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? He's like fixing to die and he's yearning for God to come and rescue him. And God doesn't seem to be showing up. And he says, how long, O Lord? And then he continues on that path. Um, but then he quickly turns and says, yet 
I will trust you. And so there's room for our complaints, for our anger, for our confusion, for our frustration, for us to say, how long, O Lord, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, or why did this happen? There's absolutely room for that. What's amazing is on those complaint psalms, they always end up back up into a place of saying, yet I will trust you. Now, (laughs) some of those psalms are like this long, and it's like one character paragraph, how long, O Lord? Second paragraph is, you know, yet I trust you. There's others that are like this long. (laughs) It takes a little more processing. It takes a little bit more time to go from how long, O Lord, to yet I will trust you. And similarly, for a lot of us, it takes a little while. We're somewhere in that process. But what's happening in this particular psalm is something different. In fact, it's something that Asaph is saying, this isn't good. This mindset that I'm bringing to the table is not good. It's called self-pity. Um, in verse 13, he says, In vanity, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, God, I deserve better than what I'm seeing around me. I followed all the rules that I need to follow. It's like, I don't know if you've ever not been told, I love you back. It's not fun. I love you. And it doesn't come, and it's really, it's not a great feeling. So essentially, he's kind of doing that. He's bringing that to the table. He's like, I served you, and it didn't, and it didn't happen. And what, what was revealed, as he said, surely in vain, I've been foolish to do this faith thing. What happened is his motivations kind of betrayed him. They outed him. See, he knows that he should have served God out of, a, out of his identity, basically saying, hey, Since I am a child of God, since I was chosen by him, since I'm a part of this people defined by this uh, pattern of holiness and righteousness, because this is my identity, therefore I serve you as an act of worship. Instead, what he did was he said, I'm going to serve you as an act of worship in hopes to get the blessing that I deserve. And when that didn't happen... When he didn't receive the blessing, instead of checking his motives, which who really wants to do that? Because then you have to like look inside of yourself and find out you're not as fascinating as you thought you were. Nobody wants to do that. So instead of checking his emotions, uh, what he decided to do was to say, go the self-pity route and say, I'm out. I was foolish. He never took blame for it. He essentially, he bails. And I think that's common for all of us. How many times do we respond to um, unfair situations by saying, I'm out. We're like the kid that takes their ball home. As an aside, I don't know why that kid always has the equipment, but he always gets out first and he always goes home. But we become that that person and we back out. That's self-pity. And then what we do is we find all the I'm sorry people. Like we want to talk to the people. They'll say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And we kind of become a little bit addicted to that. And we stay in this pattern of seeking after them. So that's one defense mechanism or one tool that he uses to counter envy. Another tool that he uh, used to counter envy is something that uh, one or two of us in this room may have been guilty of at some point in our life, probably before we were Christians, obviously, but is uh, being judgy. He decides to stand himself on the throne of judgment. He does this by deciding, um, you know, he lists out in these like broad sweeping statements These people are wicked, and they don't deserve what they have, and I'm righteous, and I don't deserve the terrible things that I have. God, if I could just give you a couple of pointers, if I could kind of redirect 
the route that you're going on this, I think I have a few things to say. See, Deuteronomy 28 through 30 was deeply embedded in, uh, in the psalmist, in Asaph, our worship leader, deeply embedded. But you know what else was embedded in him? That he, that Israel, was chosen not because of anything they brought to the table. They were chosen because God wanted to. God said, you didn't do anything for me, but I chose you out of love. He also has in his ethic that every breath that he has is a gift and is a show, is is an illustration of grace to him and is a blessing to him. So he kind of forgets that whole side of thing and whines for more. And on the other hand, he he calls out the wicked, but he also has in his ethic that a pagan is one of the most important patriarchs, the patriarch. Abram was a pagan when God called him out of that. He has in his ethic a whole slew of spiritual superheroes that were terrible people, but God showed grace to them. So he's deciding as a judge in this situation, I'm going to decide who gets grace and how much and who doesn't and how they should pay. He stands up as a judge and, oh, do we love to do this? We love this. When we are seeing life not working out for us, we forget the things that kind of are working for us. We forget to celebrate those things, and then we start to look through. And not only do we judge other people, we question their intentions, and we question God's intention, and we stand there and kind of, we know it all. We know everything. Um, I, uh, I, I, I've been guilty of this um, not that long ago. And uh, I, I was in a situation where, so like everybody uh, at their work, the more you love your work, the more you love your job, um, as I do, uh, the more you desire for it to be better and better, right? I mean, we, we, we want good things for our, the, the work that we pour ourselves into um, or the homes that we pour ourselves into. Um, and so that's, that's a good thing. Uh, what's a wrong thing is where we, um, as I did, we see that this is exactly what progress is supposed to look like. So I fell into a situation where I said, uh, uh, Grace Bible Church needs to be better at this, this thing. And clearly, since God cares only about the things that I care about, he's going to make this thing happen. No. But all I wanted was this little thing to happen, this little thing to change at Grace and instead of thinking about all the amazing things that were happening and all the people's lives that were being transformed, I nitpicked on this thing. And I became angry and I became embittered and I camped out there for a long time. And then once I found comfort and once I wore the judgment clothes, then I started to question the intentions of everybody. Ooh, my friends, don't go down that road. And I was there for a long time admittedly way longer than a person should be there, but I camped out there. Um, and we'll get to that, uh, the conclusion of that uh, in a little bit. But um, suffice it to say, I think that our uh, worship leader has done a great job. He's moving us from, okay, the world's not working out the way we want it to. This is how we respond in sin. And now he's going to move us into the next phase, which is a healthy and righteous response, which is repentance and worship and gosh, if anybody left early, I'm so sorry that they left because we've been on a kind of a bummer of a note. Um, he says uh, in verse 15, if I had said all of these things, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of God's children. And when I pondered to understand this, I was deeply troubled until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. Surely you set 
them in slippery places. Asaph is telling us the tools of envy are going to leave you embittered. They're going to leave you distant from God. They're going to leave you distanced from one another. And I got to tell you, in years of working at a church, I've seen a lot of people go down this route. In fact, I think that it's personally easier to stop the psalm right here. Right before we get to the part where Asaph says, my perspective was changed. It's really easy to camp out in the complaint, in the self-pity, and in the judgment. Many of us probably know people who feel very at home here, and it's a temptation that's constantly drawing us. And as much as Asaph wants to back away and start to question whether or not he was right to worship the God, he's trying to distance himself, but his heart feels deeply troubled, and he does the one thing none of us want to do when we're angry at somebody, he moves toward them. He moves toward God. He moves toward the sanctuary. As a married guy, I I just know that maybe the last thing that you want to do when you're feeling a little angry with, with your spouse, so I'm told, when you're feeling a little angry with your spouse, the last thing that you want to do is move toward them. But that's exactly what Asaph is telling. I know that you're angry. I know that you're upset. I know that you're full of doubt. Move toward God. And it was only his troubled conscience that moved him toward the Lord. And what happened? Everything changed. As I mentioned earlier, the moment that you walk closely with somebody, you begin to see the world in a completely different light. And this is exactly the story that happened with Asaph, great worship leader. I was troubled until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived everything changed. What happened in the sanctuary? What happens in the sanctuary when we uh, go in embittered and we come out whole and close to God? Well, I'll argue it's similar to what happens as we find ourselves in communion with other believers worshiping together. It's a perspective change. Several things happen. One is you are reminded of the stories of God's faithfulness in one another's lives. What do they do in the sanctuary in the Old Testament? They constantly declare the faithfulness of God. Everybody was tempted to whine. Everybody was tempted to say, life is not fun right now. Oh my gosh, do you remember when he delivered us from the Egyptians? That changed everything. They're constantly declaring the greatness of God. And in so doing, they're reminding themselves of who they are in relation to him, how small they are and how little they truly know. That's what happens in the sanctuary. Uh, in my little season of being bitter and, uh, and being frustrated, uh, it got, at one point it got really bad. We had a prayer meeting with staff, and I just, like, I had been triggered right before that, and I couldn't take it. Um, I couldn't even, I was in a happy place. I couldn't even sit there and pray with people who I love deeply. I couldn't even do that. So I got up and went to the bathroom and, uh, and just had to excuse myself. That's not good. Uh, and so later that afternoon, I was deeply troubled. I was like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I can't believe this is happening. I went to a good friend of mine who's also on staff as a pastor. And I said, uh, okay, I just got to level with you. I'm troubled right now. This is where I'm at. And he lovingly said, you know what, Ryan, the thing that you're angry about, that's okay. Like you're wanting to push us all toward righteousness in this one area. And then he said, 
but the way you're going about it is evil. (laughs) It's destructive not only to you, but also to the people, to God's people. And I think about Ephesians uh, when it says, instead uh, of all the bitterness and gossip and all that stuff, instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. I had a friend within the sanctuary that said, that, that spoke the truth in love. Beyond that, what he said is, Ryan, look at all these areas and these ways within this little area that you want us to grow, that God has been faithful and has shown up and has moved people forward. But because of my bitterness, I was unwilling to see that. And so I needed my friend to speak the truth and love to me, to pull me out. Things like that happen in the sanctuary. You know, with all of the, uh, we have great podcasts and uh, great worship CDs, and we can do all this stuff in the privacy of our own homes or in the car ride, on the way to work, whatever it is. And so we can kind of find ourselves moving out of the church and just relying on these sources. That stuff, this stuff doesn't happen in those settings because we still have our filter, we still have our self-pity, and we still have our judgment. And the person through the radio or through the iPod can't speak to that. They don't know us. There's no interaction. The church is important. Furthermore, um, what happens in the sanctuary is people come together and they lift up God. They worship together. They remember his faithfulness over the years, and they realize how small they are. That doesn't happen in our car, and that doesn't happen on our desktop computer. The church is so valuable uh, for us to be reminded of our, uh, of our perspective so that we would perceive differently. So he responds after leaving the, uh, after leaving the sanctuary. He says this, uh, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He said, Lord, in my bitterness, I was so consumed, I couldn't think like a human being. I had no ability to grab a hold of anything except that one thing. It's like when a dog is in brainstem and it's like, all I want to do is eat. And if you get in my way, I'm going to bite you. That is me. And he's saying, after that, nevertheless, continually, I am with you and you have taken hold of my hand, my paw. You've taken hold of my hand and you've guided me. Even when I was like a beast, you stuck with me. Oh gosh, the hope that can be found in that. Even when we're bitter, even when we're far off, God is still there with us and he's pulling us along. He's trying to guide us into his glory. And so it took a level of repentance for Asaph uh, to be in this kind of a situation where he could you know, refer to himself as a beast. So as we close, there's a couple of things that Asaph wants to tell us. Our great worship leader who's led us through the mire and into the place of worship. The first one is, um, for those of you who, are, uh, who find themselves caught up in bitterness, he's saying, you can't camp out there. Have you ever known somebody that's been bitter for like decades? It shows on their face. Do they ever get relief from their bitterness? Does it ever go away? Is there ever an answer that's satisfying? No. I, legit, I am thinking of people that I can see bitterness physically on their face. And so Asaph is saying, don't go down that road. 
So identify. So for those of you who find yourself in a place of bitterness where you're constantly dwelling on the time that you were passed over, that life didn't work out well, and you may even have one foot out of the door of the church. He's saying that path doesn't end well for you. You'll go down a path of bitterness and anger, and it's not happy. If you're not there, maybe you have some friends that are there. Find ways that you can be like my friends. Speak the truth in love. Don't shy away from that. I'm sorry, you're great. Empathy is outstanding. I'm an empathy guy. That can't be all that we offer to people who are struggling with unfairness. Speak the truth in love. Secondly, cultivate habits and faithfulness. Oh my gosh, listen to this. Verse 25, uh, Asaph says, Who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Uh, Things like this, having this mindset, it didn't happen at a conference. It didn't happen in response to an inspiring sermon. It didn't happen in response to a great text. Things like that happen to find yourself in a place of finding your ultimate satisfaction in the nearness of God comes from the tiny little daily habits of finding contentedness when you're tempted with being discontent or envious or jealous or focused on your rejection. Find opportunities to cultivate that perspective Find ways that when you feel like withdrawing from the community just to take one step forward when it's really easy so that when your number's called, you're not like doing some strange thing that you've never done before. How do you cultivate these uh, little habits of faithfulness? You just draw near to people. Find yourself confessing sin, confessing bitterness. It was the most life-giving thing that I could do to confess my sin to my pastor, and to tell him what I was dealing with. I was terrified. <laughs> Who wants to be the guy that says, hey, I left a prayer meeting because I was so angry. Nobody wants to be that guy. Boy, I found freedom in that. Find little opportunities to move forward in faithfulness in the uh, presence of God. Um, as we leave here, uh, my prayer for us is that we would receive the challenge from Asaph and that we would be changed, that we would be uh, transformed by him. Would you all bow with me? Lord Jesus, um, Right now, um, we're going to follow Asaph's lead. And we're going to move forward from the beginning of thinking about the time that we were absolutely embittered. And we're going to spend time working on that now, and we're going to respond in worship. Lord, would you incline our hearts now to find our satisfaction in your presence? Lord, as we worship you right now, we pray, uh, Father, that we would begin to move toward you in the ways that we haven't. Free us, Lord, from bitterness. Free us from anger. Free us from pity. Free us from judgment. And free us into abundant life that can only be found in you. And Lord, help us to invite others to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.